Welcome to New Life Assembly of God Media Ministry. We are glad that you are here. We believe the Word of God is relevant and life-changing, and we hope you can be blessed by this message. A new series tonight, The Seven Deadly Sins. Turn with me, if you will, to Proverbs 16, verse 18. We're also going to be looking at Romans 12, verse 3. The first sin we're going to be looking at tonight is pride. Tonight's message is titled, The Peril of Pride. Let me ask you a question. What would you do if you saw a snake in your house? Somebody said, run, I'm with you. <laughs> Well, a few years ago, one of our senior saints saw a snake in her closet, or what she thought to be a snake. And so she was terrified. And in a panic, she called up a friend from church and asked if she and her husband could come over and kill the snake in her closet. And so they rushed over, and the husband, armed with a hammer, because that's all he could grab in a rush when he was leaving the house, not sure what he was planning to do with the hammer, maybe bludgeon the snake to death, I'm not sure. But they rushed on over, and he went into the closet and began to search, and soon he emerged victoriously with the victim dangling in his hand. The snake in the closet had turned out to be a shoelace. But you know what? Better safe than sorry, right? <laughs> Scientists say that the fear of snakes and spiders is actually hardwired into our brain as an innate self-protective mechanism, and as such, it is prevalent in most adults. So most adults have an innate fear of snakes and spiders. How many are in that group? Amen. <laughs> I see a lot of hands going up. And with good cause, of course, because one in five species of snakes is poisonous. And, um, you know, they often tell you, you know, if it's got red inside and dark colors on the, I'm not going to stop to look what color is where on a snake. I am taken off. Amen. <laughs> Uh, an ancient writer said in uh, Sirach 21.2, it said, flee from sin as from a snake. Flee from sin as from a snake. Now, not all snakes, as we said, may be deadly, but I can assure you of one thing, all sin is deadly. There is no such thing as small or insignificant sins, just as there is no such thing as safe rattlesnakes. One writer asked, have you ever seen a baby rattlesnake? They're actually kind of cute. Everything is miniaturized. They get that menacing look on their face as they rear back, and they, they uh, bare their fangs, and they shake their little rattler, warning you of impending doom. And they're so cute. They're just a baby. And you might think, what harm could such a cute little snake do? The answer is plenty, because the venom of a baby rattlesnake is more toxic than the venom of an adult rattlesnake. So the best thing to do, he said, if you see a baby rattler, is either kill it yourself or find somebody who can. I opt for the second. <laughs> but that's the way sin is. All sin is deadly. And sometimes we look at certain sins and we say, what harm could that be? It doesn't seem like a major issue. But that is the deception. 
because often the things that don't seem big are the very things that will bring your downfall. All sin is deadly. We all struggle with sin, but there are certain sins that have been recognized as particularly perilous for the people of God. And though it's not listed as such in the Bible, church leaders throughout time identified and commonly referred to these perilous sins as the seven deadly sins, bringing not only physical death, but more importantly, spiritual death, which is separation from God in this life and in the life to come. Now, the list of seven deadly sins identifies some of the most common traps that leads to the downfall and defeat of believers. Now, the goal of this series is that we might be able to recognize these dangerous sins before they subtly creep into our lives and ensnare us, and that we can learn to walk in victory over them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, when you hear the phrase, seven deadly sins, you are tempted to think of actions that are particularly heinous and and wicked, actions that describe some maniacal, monstrous person, when in truth, these sins are completely ordinary and unspectacular, and that's what makes them so very dangerous. Now, the seven deadly sins identified by the church fathers that are particularly dangerous to Christians are these, pride, envy, anger, laziness, greed, gluttony, and lust. Now, did you see some things on that list that we don't often think is a big deal? Like gluttony, overeating. I mean, who is not gluttonous on Thanksgiving? And other times, amen. Or greed. Greed is often present in the hearts of people, even in church, that desire for more, more, more. That's why so many people are in debt. We were just talking about debt. That's why so many people are in debt. Or anger, you know, just losing our top, speaking harshly to our spouse or to our children. (coughs) Hallelujah. Or laziness. I mean, have we ever really thought about laziness as sin? And yet the Bible says it is. It was getting awful quiet in here. But tonight we're going to be talking about pride. And pride seems as such a small thing in comparison to a sin like murder, thou shalt not kill. We, we, we definitely recognize murder as a sin. But pride? Or, or what about gluttony as compared to ethnic hatred or racial violence? I mean, gluttony seems like such a small thing. But the list of sins, even though it seems so insignificant compared to more grievous acts of evil, that's the very reason that these sins are so dangerous. Because we often don't recognize them as sins, and they can subtly infiltrate our lives, my life and your life, and we can be almost oblivious to their deadly presence as they begin to grow in our lives. We need to understand, and I'm going to say it again, that all sin is deadly 100% of the time. All sin is deadly 
100% of the time. Even those sins that might seem to us as common or insignificant. But these sins are particularly dangerous because they are also the source from which other sins flow. For instance, Jesus identified anger as the root cause behind murder. In the Sermon on the Mount, he talked about getting angry with your brother and calling them a fool or an idiot. And so you see, the sin of anger births words that destroy and can actually lead to actions that kill. So even though the anger in itself might not seem like a big deal, when it continues in our life, it can become a big deal. Or in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about other things like lust. He said, The Bible says, or it is written, you know, you shall not lust. But I say unto you, inasmuch as you look at a woman in your heart to lust after her, you have already committed adultery. Why? Because the sin starts in the heart. You would never take the action if you had not thought the thought. And if you allow the thought to stay there, it will eventually grow and produce the action. Paul also spoke about the sin of greed. He called it the love of money. And what did he say it was? The root of all evil. So these sins, even though they seem small and insignificant, they grow and they can lead to many more severe sins. You know, we were just talking about greed being the root of all evil. And I read an article in, uh, in 2022 uh, when the news media reported that a Pennsylvania dentist shot his wife on an African safari to collect a $5 million insurance policy on her life. Greed led to murder. So you see how these sins, though they seem small, can lead to bigger offenses. One writer states the seriousness of these seven sins is not so much in the sin themselves, but in their ability to generate more serious offspring. And that's certainly true of the first of the seven deadly sins that we're going to consider today, which is pride. One author writes, beware of pride. I would put it first in the list of the seven deadly sins. It produces independence, rebellion, and self-will. It leads to all other sins. It makes one think, as Lucifer did, that he is more important than God. That he is more important than God. The Bible warns against pride numerous times. Psalm 10 verse 4 says, In his pride, the wicked man does not seek him. So pride keeps us from seeking God. In his thoughts, it says, there is no room for God. Why? Because thoughts are all filled with self. When we're prideful, thoughts are filled with self rather than God. Proverbs 8, 13, God says, I hate pride and arrogance. Pride is the sin that got Satan cast out of heaven when he was an archangel. He became lifted up over his God-given splendor and beauty and wisdom, and he was no longer willing to submit to God, he said, why should I submit to God? I can be God myself. And he tried to exalt himself above the throne of God. He rebelled against God. 
Pride was ultimate, the ultimate temptation that led Adam and Eve to fall into sin. As Satan enticed them to eat of the fruit, saying, you shall be as gods. That was the sin of pride. That was the third temptation he leveled against them, and it was the temptation that clinched the deal because that's when they ate the fruit. It led to their fall. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. And we know in the case of Satan, in the case of Adam and Eve, pride led to the fall. Amen? And, and consequently, um, the sin of Adam and Eve, they, they were cast out of the garden. Satan was cast out of heaven. They lost their position before God. Adam and Eve lost their relationship with God. They lost the blessing of God. They had to uh, uh, have hard labor, tedious labor to earn a living. So all of these consequences of sin. And of course, as a result of their sin, physical disease, pain, and death became a part of the human ex experience. And sin resulted in the loss of fellowship with God. Pride is a dangerous sin that leads to great destruction. But the question I want to ask is, is all pride sinful? Is all pride sinful? You know, parents often try to instill a sense of pride or self-worth in their children, right? Is that sinful? Or if your child makes a home run or gets good grades or performs in a play or achieves some other accomplishment, you are a proud parent, and rightfully so, and you say, that's my kid, right? Amen? If we graduate from college, if we compete or do a sport well or finish a task well, we are proud of ourselves that we accomplished it, and so we should. The type of pride that expresses a sense of achievement or motivates us to desire excellence and aspires to do the best that we can do, that is a positive attitude and it is beneficial. Even God, when he had finished his creation, he stepped back and looked at it and what did he say? It is good. It is very good good. What was he doing? He was reveling in his accomplishment, in, in his creation, what he had just done. But this is not the kind of pride that is condemned in scripture. Notice that in Proverbs 16, 18, it says, pride goes before destruction, haughtiness. The word haughtiness is arrogance. It describes a stubbornness. It, it describes a rebellion, haughtiness before a fall. So Hebrew poetic literature uses parallelism, and in this case, um, he is repeating the same truth in two different ways. So God puts pride and arrogance on a parallel. The type of pride that the scripture warns against is arrogance. It's haughtiness. And the problem is that sinful pride has become a celebrated virtue in society rather than a sin to be avoided. So today we want to consider how to recognize the sin of pride, why it's so dangerous, and how we can overcome it. The first thing I want us to see is that pride is thinking too highly of ourselves. Reading from Romans 12, 3, it says, for by the grace given unto me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. So pride is having an inflated opinion of ourselves. 
virtually everybody has heard of Tiger Woods. Have you heard of Tiger Woods? Amen. Uh, he, he rose to meteoric success uh, as a pro golfer um, from, from a very young age, one of the youngest that uh, accomplished that success. But he also was embroiled in scandals and failures that surrounded his personal life. In 2010, during a, te a televised speech, Woods apologized for extramarital affairs that he had engaged in and in the negative <coughs> publicity globally uh, that res resulted in costing him millions of uh, commercial sponsorships. His words illustrate how success can lead to arrogance. He said this in his speech, I know my actions were wrong, but I convinced myself that normal rules did not apply to me. I never thought about who I was hurting. I thought I could get away with whatever I wanted to because of his success, because of his wealth, he's saying. I felt that I had worked hard my entire life and deserved to enjoy all the temptations around me. I felt entitled. I deserve this. You see the pride, the pride. His pride made him feel he could do whatever he wanted to do, and it led to his downfall. See, pride lifts us up. We think we are better than others, and pride is competitive, and it's constantly comparing self with others, and, and, and self always comes out on top, right, when we compare ourselves. For that reason, pride can make us very critical of other people, putting others down in order to lift ourselves up. And pride, like Tiger Woods, thinks that we are above the rules, that the rules apply to everybody else, but we are entitled to do what we want to do. As one author states, pride is a sin that affects not just some people. Every human being has this tendency by nature to want to decide for themselves what's right and what's wrong and do away with God's laws. They don't apply to me. I can be my own God. I can set my own standards. I don't need anybody telling me how to live. So pride ex expresses itself in rebellion and primarily rebellion against God. And a proud person is never satisfied because there's always someone who has more or who has achieved more. So we're constantly driven to seek to get more and achieve more. And Christians can be particularly susceptible to pride because it can be subtly expressed in a spiritual way as self-righteousness and super-spirituality, like the Pharisees who thought themselves more righteous and spiritual than anyone else. Jesus condemned the pride of the Jewish leaders when he told the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. In Luke 18, you might remember, Jesus talks about a, 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 a Pharisee who boasted in his righteousness. But he addresses the parable in verse 9 to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. What is that? Spiritual pride, right? We're better than everybody else. We're more righteous. We're more spiritual than everybody else. And so they're looking down on everyone else. And he describes this Pharisee who uh, comes into to the temple and parades himself all the way to the front, saying, I thank God that I'm not like other people. 
I'm not like robbers and evildoers and adulterers or even this tax collector because there was a humble tax collector there in, in the uh, temple at this time. He says, I thank God I'm not like him. And, and so he's playing the comparison game and of course he's coming out on top and, and he's saying, I'm better. I'm more righteous. I'm more spiritual than all these people. But you know, we can never win the comparison game when we hold our lives up against Jesus, right? Because it's not really a comparison between me and you. We are called to be like Jesus. I'm not called to be like you. You're not called to be like me. We're called to be like Jesus. And I don't think there's anybody that has reached that standard. Amen? But the Pharisee begins to list his righteous deeds. He says, I fast two times a week and I tithe from everything that I earn. And he's really boasting to God. He's commending himself to God and saying, God, you are blessed that I'm one of yours. You're blessed that I'm in your service because I am so righteous and I am so faithful. Amen. And, and, and he's, he, he, you know, he's saying, it's your privilege to have me as one of your uh, leaders because I'm such a wonderful person, such a righteous person, amen? It's kind of sobering. But then the tax collector, he wouldn't come down to the front because he was so convicted of his sin. He stood from afar with his head down. He couldn't even look up and he cried for mercy. Have mercy on me, O oh God, I'm just a sinner. And Jesus said, which one of these men went back to his house justified or made righteous. It was the tax collector because he recognized his need for mercy. The other guy thought he had it all together. He didn't need God. He didn't need the righteousness that comes from God. Sobering, but the religious, those in church, can be particularly susceptible to the sin of pride and not even realize it. I, I've heard it through the years, not anybody here, but sometimes people giving a testimony. And I spoke to this person about Jesus. And I led this person to Christ. And I prayed with this. And I is getting all the glory. Not God. Have you ever heard testimonies like that? Amen. Where all the focus is on the person. And, and see, this pride is so insidious that it just infiltrates and we don't even realize when it's taken over our life. Jesus tells us that true greatness in his kingdom does not come from lifting ourselves up before others, but from humbling ourselves before God. Humble yourself in the sight of God and he will exalt you. He will lift you up. Pride is extremely deceptive and that's why it's so dangerous. Pride blinds us to our own faults and weaknesses. It causes us to focus on the splinter in the eyes of others rather than seeing the telephone pole in our own eye. Pride can cause us to think that we have earned special favor with God because of what we have done. Like the Pharisee when he said, I fast two times a week and I tithe off of everything that I earn. And sometimes we can hear that pride in our prayers, right? God, I've served you for 20 years. I've taught Sunday school, Lord God. I, I went out with the evangelism team, Lord. Hear my prayer. Have you ever heard a prayer like that? 
Have you ever, don't answer out loud, have you ever prayed a prayer like that? Amen. And, and sometimes we don't even realize it, how we are commending ourselves to God, how that pride has just kind of slipped in there. And we're kind of saying, God, you owe me. I've done all of this for you. And now you owe me, God. I'm, I'm entitled to you answering my prayer. So pride deceives us into taking credit for what is received by grace. Any talent, any ability, any intellect, any skill, any righteousness that we have does not come from us. It has been given us by the grace of God. Any good, any virtue in us is not our doing. It is the work of God's grace in us. One writer expressed it this way. He said, when we take too much credit for our lives and our achievements, when we come to look at our lives as products of our own striving rather than gifts of God's grace, we are moving close to that idolatry in which the creator refuses to give the glory due, the creature, excuse me, refuses to give the glory due to the creator. And Paul speaks about that in Romans 1. So when we start taking credit, you know, we are giving the glory to self, and we are refusing to give glory to God. And he says, pride is idolatry. And Paul describes it as such in Romans 1.25. It is worshiping the created rather than the creator who alone is worthy of praise. And by the very nature of the sin of pride, the prideful person doesn't see anything wrong with themselves. They don't recognize their fault or their need to change. The classic Christian writer C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, so aptly observed, there is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves than pride. There is no fault that we are more unconscious of in ourselves than pride. And he called pride the great sin. He said it was through pride that the devil became the devil. He said pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. So what is the answer? What is the cure for pride? While the world in many ways encourages us to cultivate pride as a virtue, God encourages us to cultivate an attitude of humility. Humility is having a right view of ourselves before God. We go back to Romans 12, 3, and it says, be honest in your evaluation of yourself. So don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, but be honest in your evaluation of yourself. True humility comes from seeing ourselves the way God sees us. Do you remember when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up in Isaiah chapter 6, and he heard the angels crying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty? Not only did Isaiah see the Lord, but as he saw the Lord, he saw himself more clearly. And he fell on his face and he cried out and he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of an unclean you see, in the presence of the Lord, there is no room for pride. Amen. And if you're spending time regularly in the presence of the Lord, there will be no room for pride. 
Remember in the presence of Jesus, Peter cried out, Away from me, Lord! I am a sinful man. He recognized in that moment when Jesus was revealed to him that he was so unworthy. He was so sinful. Pride cannot survive in the presence of the Lord. In his presence, we are given a glimpse to see ourselves the way we truly are, sinful, flawed human beings in need of his saving grace. The first beatitude that Jesus taught was, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's not talking about financial poverty, but he's talking about those who realize that in ourselves we have absolutely nothing to offer to God, nothing to commend ourselves to God, nothing to earn or deserve God's favor. We are spiritually destitute, spiritually bankrupt in need of Him. And then when we are poor in spirit, our sinfulness will be ever before our eyes. And that's why the second beatitude is, blessed are those who mourn. He's not talking about miserable people who go around all day long with woe is me. He's talking about people who are broken over their sin. They are mourning over their sin. They feel the burden, the weight of their sin. He's speaking about what Paul describes as a godly sorrow in Corinthians, a godly sorrow that produces repentance and leads to salvation. But we will never mourn over our sinfulness until we see ourselves the way that God sees us apart from Christ. And we'll never see ourselves the way God sees us unless we spend time in his presence. And that is what brings us to that place of humbling ourselves before God. And that leads to brokenness and repentance and, and regularly confessing our sins before God. Because every one of us needs to regularly repent and confess before the Lord. Not because we're continuing to repeatedly sin. Because we ought to be growing, right? So we shouldn't be doing the same sin for the last 10 years and, oh, God, I'm sorry, and go back out and do it. So we, we ought to be growing. But you know what? This side of eternity, we are never perfect. So there is always something in our life that the Holy Spirit should be dealing with if we're spending time in God's presence. And that is what we should regularly be coming and repenting of and confessing before the Lord. True humility comes from focusing on God, not on self. When we look at ourselves and compare ourselves with others, we may think, hey, I'm pretty good. I don't do what that person does. Just like the Pharisee in the temple, I thank God I'm not an adulterer. I thank God I'm not like this tax collector. We're comparing ourselves with other people, and, 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 and we think, hey, I'm not so bad. But when we look at the Lord and we see his utter holiness, like Isaiah seeing the Lord high and lifted up and hearing uh, the angels cry, holy, holy, holy. He is overtaken, overwhelmed by the holiness of God. And he realizes his utter sinfulness. That's what being in the presence of God does for us. Amen. We recognize that, that not only have we made mistakes or, or messed up things in our life, but we recognize that we have sinned against a holy God. 
He is the Holy One who sits on the throne. He is the authority to which we must all give answer for our lives. And we have offended him with our sin. And there is nothing that we can do ourselves to make it right. We are completely destitute and we must depend fully upon him for forgiveness and salvation. Humility is the point at which the process of salvation begins in our life because humility works repentance in our heart. True humility is the key to our relationship with God and his blessing. The foundation of our relationship with God is faith and faith is based on humility. Trusting ourselves in dependency upon God as our soul says, apart from him, I can do nothing. You know, pride often manifests itself in an inability to rely on someone else, ask help from someone else, or receive gifts from someone else. But the Christian life is all about recognizing our need for God and asking for his help. And every blessing we receive from God is by his grace. There's nothing that we can earn or work for or deserve. It is his free gift, not just salvation, but everything we receive from God is by his grace. So we can't work for it. We can't earn, earn it. We can't be righteous enough to deserve it. We must simply humble ourselves in faith and depend upon his grace. When we pray, we don't deserve his answer, but we humble ourselves in dependency and say, I need your help, God. I need your help. Every virtue in our life is a work of his grace. And when he uses us to minister to someone else, it is by his grace. We can take no credit for it. That's why I mentioned earlier about testimonies that say, I spoke to this person and I prayed with this person and I led this person to the Lord. We, we need to be careful that we don't take the glory that belongs to God because he says, my glory is my own and I will not share it with another. So every time God uses us to minister to others, it is by his grace. We can take no credit for it. You know, Paul stood in awe that God could use him. Paul said, you know what? I am the worst of sinners. And yet, by God's grace, he has called me and chosen to use me. There was this, this sense of awe in Paul that I'm amazed, God, that you can do anything through me. That is an attitude of humility. And that is the person that God will use in great ways. Because then all the glory goes back to God. True humility will express itself in gratitude for the gifts that flow through us to minister to others, for every good thing that is in us, because the, even the fruit of the Spirit, if we're loving, if we're kind, if we're joyous, if we're patient, if we're faithful, even the fruit of the Spirit, it's a gift. It's a work of the Holy Spirit in us. It's a work of His grace. And we ought to be grateful for any good, any virtue that in us, is in us, and for every blessing we have received. 
and for every accomplishment we have achieved, for we can do nothing apart from him. One writer aptly pointed out, he said, one of the world's biggest complaints against Christians is that Christians are too, what? Judgmental. That we talk too much about sin, but it seems that the problem really is that we talk too much about other people's sins, pointing out the proverbial speck in others' eyes while ignoring the logs in our own eyes. And it is so much easier to talk about the sins of others than it is to admit and face our own. But God wants us to focus on our own lives, humble ourselves, and pray like David and say, search me, O God, and see if there be any wicked way in me. You see, pride makes us judgmental of others. And that's the number one accusation of non-Christians towards Christians. Because pride can lift us up and say, I am so much more righteous than everybody else that I have the right to tell everybody else what's wrong with their life. But God says, you know what? Deal with your own sin. Deal with your own shortcomings. Let me deal with the other person. Amen. Let's ask God to search us and show us of any pride that may have snuck its way into our hearts. Pride that we might not even be aware of. And when he shows it to us, let us humble ourselves and repent. And let that be a constant attitude of our heart, not tonight only, but every day. Show me, Lord, if there's any pride in my life. Would you take a moment and just bow your heads? Heavenly Father, we just come before you right now, Lord God, and we just humble ourselves in your presence. And Lord God, sometimes things make their way into our life, and we don't even realize it. And so we need the convicting work of your Holy Spirit in us. We ask you to search our hearts and make known to us if in any way pride has made its way into our heart. Expose it, Lord, and as you do, we will humble ourselves before you and we will repent and we ask you to cleanse us of that pride Change us, Lord God, that we may walk in humility before you. Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus. And even as we leave from this place, let your word and your spirit continue to deal with our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We love you. Have a wonderful rest of your evening, and we'll see you on Sunday. Amen. Or on Saturday for prayer meeting at 9. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. If you were blessed by this message, would you consider giving a gift to help support our ministry? You can text any amount to 954-516-1522. That's 954-516-1522. Thank you and we hope you will join us again.